Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to Kid Sister, performed by the Time Jumpers and written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Vince Gill. The multi-instrumentalist, singer, and songwriter launched his solo career in the mid-1980s, hitting the top 10 on Billboard's country singles chart a remarkable 25 times. All but one of those hits was written or co-written by Gill, and a dozen of his compositions have been nominated for either CMA Song of the Year, ACM Song of the Year, or the Best Country Song Grammy. These include When I Call Your Name, Look at Us, Pocket Full of Gold, When Love Finds You, High Lonesome Sound, If You Have Forever in Mind, Feels Like Love, and Threaten Me with Heaven. Go Rest High on That Mountain won both the CMA Song of the Year and the Best Country Song Grammy, while I Still Believe in You won the Best Country Song Grammy as well as both the CMA and the ACM's Song of the Year awards. Though he's won four in total, Vince is the only songwriter to ever win three consecutive Song of the Year awards from the CMA. He has won more Grammy awards with over 20 trophies than any male country performer in history. These include two Best Country Song wins, as well as a 2017 win for Best American Roots Song for Kid Sister. He has won eight ACM awards and 18 CMA awards, including Vocalist of the Year five years in a row and Entertainer of the Year two years in a row. Other highlights from his long list of hit singles include the number one hits, Don't Let Our Love Start Slipping Away, One More Last Chance, and Trying to Get Over You. In addition to writing his own material, Vince's songs have been recorded by Loretta Lynn, Bob Seger, John Denver, Mary Chapin Carpenter, John Prine, Willie Nelson, Michael McDonald, Leanne Rimes, and Alabama, who topped the country charts with his Here We Are. Vince was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2005 and the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2007. In 2014, he was named a BMI icon, one of only 12 country writers ever honored with the prestigious award. Man, of all days for me to show up with a cold, the day we launched this Vince Gill episode, one of my favorites, mm-hmm. and I show up sounding like this. Yeah, I'm just glad you brought your own mic today, because <laughs> I would not let your mouth get that close to any mic that I own. Yeah, you, are, well, you, you, sir, may just be contagious. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's possible that you may end up with what I have after I leave, but uh, awesome. thankfully none of this is going to travel through the magic of the internet or anybody's earbuds <laughs> to get to them, so if you're listening uh, today, I think you're safe. They are. Um, but man, what a great episode we've got today. And before we get into talking too much more about Vince, I, I want to get uh, into our Jimmy Webb contest. Yeah. We yeah. have a winner. We have a winner. We're, we're giving away Jimmy Webb's uh, brand new memoir, The Cake in the Rain. We yep. talked about it on last week's episode. And uh, here I have the name that we have drawn. It is Michael L. Ruffin. Oh, nice. So, Michael. Actually, uh, I, I, he was a professor of mine in college, really? as a matter of fact. And uh and oh, I'm glad that he. That's cool. I'm, I'm glad that he won. So, uh, so you think you're going to get a good grade now from this? Yeah, thing? maybe Long he'll go back ago. and revise uh, some of those old papers or something. <laughs> um, actually, you know, it's funny. He and I, um, uh, you know, kind of obviously knew each other because I was a student of his. Um, but he's like a big music uh, fan, so we kind of have kept in touch nice. uh, over the years, um, which I guess is why he follows our podcast. Well, so that's uh, that's very cool. 
So congrats, Michael Ruffin. And uh, we've got a Vince Gill contest that we're starting today, too. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this one because um, we have given away signed stuff, you know, books, CDs, whatever, in in the past, which is always really cool when the guests are are willing to let us, uh, you know, share something, share some swag yeah. with our listeners. Um, now, this contest that we're announcing today, however, is unique because the winner of this brand new Vince Gill contest is going to win a signed CD from Vince, but there is a little cherry on top, and that is the CD will be personalized to the winner. Wow. So Vince did not just sign a CD and mail it to us. Uh, once we draw our actual winner uh, in two weeks, he will then personalize that CD to that That's person. That's pretty cool. Right? So like if your name is you know Thaddeus, just as an example, <laughs> then you wow. will get a CD if you win, and it'll be like, to Thaddeus. Can I enter this? Uh, you can, but um, it might. Uh, no, no, you can't. Yeah, that's like absolutely against the rules of of songcraft. <laughs> <laughs> that that is a sweet prize. So be sure you enter that one. Go to our website, songcraftshow.com/contest. Yeah, and be sure you do so before midnight Pacific time on Sunday, May fourteenth. So that gives you a couple weeks to yep. uh, to enter, and uh, and then we'll announce on our next episode uh, the big winner. I think that one's a pretty exciting prize. You know, talking about Vince Gill, our guest uh, today, you mentioned he's a multi-instrumentalist. And, you know, I, I would say that along with Steve Cropper, he may be the best guitarist that we've ever had on Songcraft. Yeah, I mean, it's almost unfair because uh, unprecedented. There's an argument to be made that Vince Gill could potentially be the most commercially successful songwriter in Nashville history. Yeah, possibly. Hugely famous uh, singer and performer. Great tenor voice. Mm -hmm. Guy can just sing anything. And he plays guitar like insane. Yep. And, you know, some of those huge ballads that he had, some of those huge hits, barely even have any guitar on them. The guy can just, he is, he is a guitar playing yep. fool. You know, guys like him and Keith Urban and Brad Paisley, you know, they have these these songs and you forget that they can also just shred with the best of them. Yep. And it, it's, I think I might hate Vince Gill because that is too <laughs> much, that is too much yeah. talent. And one man should not be that talented to be able to be such a great singer and yep. musician and writer. It's, it's just, you know what it is? It's not fair. Yeah. And he's absolutely a do it all kind of guy. And you know, I mean, not everybody is able to do it all. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of listeners that are, that are songwriters and maybe you're not, uh, a Vince Gill caliber guitar player. Um, <laughs> maybe you'd like to have somebody else kind of play some of the instruments for you and uh, put together a demo that can really bring your song to life. We want to let you know about our friends at Pearl Snap Studios in Nashville. Yeah. That they, they can make first-rate quality demos for you at uh, an affordable price. And I can tell you for sure, Justin at Pearl Snap Studios is a friend and co-writer of mine. And we work together a lot. And the demos that he turns around for the songs that we do together... Are, are some of my favorite. It's amazing stuff. Yeah, and you know, we've kind of talked about here at Songcraft, how much do we align ourselves with with other people, mm -hmm. you know, with other companies, with people that are, that are you know, doing things that are, like, complementary to what we're doing. Because, yeah. um, you know, we don't want to be a show that just goes and tells people to check out products or, or services or, or whatever unless it's something that we actually believe in and right. it's people that we know and and people that we have a lot of respect for so um you know i think it's cool for us to kind of be able to uh to partner with some other people and and work together to to spread the good word of of something that i think a lot of our listeners could really benefit from because you know if, if you're really serious about wanting to pitch your songs in nashville 
you need to have a, a Nashville ready demo. For it's sure. not the kind of thing where you can, you know, just put down some kind of real rough work tape and nobody right. knows who you are and knows your name and, and send it somewhere in the mail and hope that, you know, something's going to happen or you send the MP3 or whatever it yeah. is. Um, it, it's got to have the the right sound and, and you got to rely on people who know how to do that. Yeah. And you mentioned Nashville. Of course, they don't just do country demos. Yeah. Justin and Pearl Snap can do rock and pop and really credible jobs on any style of music you need. And, and the cool thing, too, is that they can work remotely with anyone from around the country. It's not about having to show up at the studio, but you can actually send your stuff in. Yeah, I think that's cool if you live in, you know, Wisconsin or uh, Costa Rica or London or wherever you live. Yeah. You know, you can still work with those guys. That's really yeah, that's I think really you need cool. to be on planet Earth, but that's about it. <laughs> um, and so for anyone that wants to take advantage of what Pearl Snap Studios is doing, you can go to their website, PearlSnapStudios.com. And if you let them know that you heard about them through Songcraft, you're going to get $25 off your demo. So nice. That's that's pretty good stuff there. Good deal. So, do you uh, think if I um, contact them and tell them that I heard about them on Songcraft, that I can get twenty five dollars off? Also, if I can't win the contest, you can't do that. Ah, uh, shoot. So okay. we, we've got to rebound by some kind of rule of law here. <laughs> um, so on to this amazing conversation with Vince Gill. Yeah, just such a nice guy. Yeah. We really appreciate him uh, sharing his time with us. And um, boy, it, what else can you say? I mean, the the. Even though I gave a very lengthy introduction, <laughs> the man who needs no introduction. Yeah, well, let's do it. Vince, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. How you guys doing? Doing great. How's sunny Southern California? Oh man, it doesn't disappoint. Yeah, it's as sunny as you might uh, remember. I <laughs> yeah, I moved out. I moved out there as a 19-year-old kid, and just crazy about that place. Oh yeah, it's great. Well, you were uh, you were born in Oklahoma, um, where I understand you started out playing in bluegrass bands. And but when you did begin putting together songs of your own, wh- what do you remember about the first song you ever wrote? Just how bad it was. <laughs> <laughs> More than anything else. You know, well, let's I see if we can find a clip. Uh, <laughs> uh, you won't you won't find it. It, it, it hadn't showed up yet. But I think the funny thing is about songwriting is is it's like anything else, you know. It takes you a long time to be a, become a decent player, become a decent singer. Yeah. And I think the same thing holds true with writing songs. You've got to uh, you've got to be willing to be patient, you know. And you're just not going to be a great songwriter right off the bat. And and I certainly wasn't, you know. And I figured out a lot of things and just got better as the, as the years went along. And was smart enough to to get around people that were great songwriters yeah. and 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 just invaluable. Yeah. what you what you learn you know and i think the hardest thing to do when you're young is, is be willing to edit yourself mm-hmm. yeah. and to just not think the first thing you say is the greatest thing and and be willing to just kind of sit and and massage whatever that idea you might have and and not necessarily is the first thing that comes going to be the greatest yeah. yeah you know you talk about the the first the first efforts not being so good when you were kind of in that place did you recognize at at a young age like man i'm I'm not really there yet or like many young writers did you think man this is the this is the best thing that, that could ever be no i think most of us think the, the last song we wrote is the greatest song ever written but you know it's uh i just think that you know you, you can you can listen to a great song and, and go well mine I'm getting there, you yeah. know, and just, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's telling stories. Yeah. Right. You know, it's, right. it's take somebody with you, you know, and if, if songs are, are predominantly only about you, it's probably not going to be that interesting. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think 
the, the great thing about songs is is you can you can put yourself in a great song right. and put your life in in a great story and 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 relate and yeah. that to me is the is the real key is to get mm. a lot of people that will respond and and understand maybe yeah yeah the pictures you're painting well, you eventually made your way to Los Angeles, as you mentioned, early in, in your music career. How did you end up on the West Coast, and, and in what ways did, did the environment out here influence your creativity or even your sensibilities as a songwriter, perhaps? Well, I moved out there uh, at 19 to play in a band with a fellow named Byron Berline, who was a yeah. pretty well-known bluegrass fiddle player, but also a session fiddle player in Los Angeles. He played on a lot of movie soundtrack stuff and other people's records. And right. uh, he was kind of the first call fiddle player out there in the 70s. And, and I moved out there, and, and the first place I played was the Troubadour. Wow, oh, nice. Which was, in the in the day of, of, of the 70s, was the Mecca. Yeah. Yep. Was the, the gathering place for songwriters, you know. And, and I walked in there, and we were the first gig I played in L.A. was there. Wow. And our band was opening for Guy Clark. Man, and Rodney Crowell was there, and I was singing one of Rodney's songs in, in the show, and, and he came back and introduced myself. He said, I don't know who you are, but I love the way you sing my song, and made uh, a fast friend in him and Guy, and yeah. And there's a couple of guys that you, you'd be really smart to, yeah. to try to learn from if you <laughs> yeah, could. You definitely. Know? And, and that's what, you know, that was, that was such a, um, a hotbed in, in, in those days, the 70s of, all these great people coming to to write songs and and uh, nice to get get involved in it. And I started trying to write songs and you know and I think with all songwriters you 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 don't hear the bad ones it takes to get that occasional good one. Right. They all wind up in the same desk drawer, you know. And nobody hears <laughs> right. everybody's bad songs, but we've all got drawers full of them. Right. You know? right. We got we got hard drives full of them now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, you know, your real breakthrough as an artist came after you joined Pure Prairie League in the late 1970s. And this was following their mid-1970s success with the song Amy. But it was after you joined the group that they had their only top ten hit, Let Me Love You Tonight. And even though that wasn't a song that you wrote, you contributed a good bit of original material to the albums you recorded with the band. Um, in what ways did getting a chance to go out on the road and play your songs in front of a live audience sharpen your skills as a writer? Well, I remember joining that band, you know, and I think I had written eight songs maybe total in my life. Wow. And 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 they recorded five of them. Jeez. And they wow. weren't very good. <laughs> you know, the band didn't have, you know, they were, that band was at the time uh, was basically a rhythm section that hired the, the singer-songwriters and guitar players to front their band. And, mm. and uh, I was with, I think, three different folks for three different records on on who played in that band. Mm. Um, so all of a sudden, then I, I joined this band and they liked my songs. I went, oh, man, I'm, I guess I'm a songwriter. <laughs> well. But I don't think I was very good. And, and so it kind of made me buckle down right away and say, hey, you gotta, you got to try to get better with these songs. Wow. And, you know, it was, they were all kind of Southern rockish and, and whatnot. And I'm just trying to figure my way out, you know. Yeah. And... We had a hit or two and got on the radio a little bit and got to be on American Bandstand and just more than anything it was a it was a tremendous learning experience for me yeah. to learn about publishing, to learn about record companies, to learn about touring, 
all those kinds of things in the kind of the big leagues, so to speak, of right. of what it was really like. It was really invaluable for for a kid to get to you know go to traipse around. Yeah, yeah. Well, in 1980, you experienced your first charting hit as a songwriter when you were still the lead singer of Pure Prairie League, and that song, of course, was I'm Almost Ready, which became a top 40 single uh, on the pop chart. I'm almost ready to let you know just how bad I feel. Interestingly to me, it was covered by Leona Williams, who's best known for having been married to Merle Haggard and for, you know, writing a couple of his hits like Someday When Things Are Good and, and You Take Me For Granted. And I think it's kind of fascinating that the first Vince Gill song to ever hit the country chart was actually a Leona Williams record. Um, and I'm curious if at that point in 1981, were you already thinking of, of crossing over to the country market as an artist or was that something that you just kind of stumbled into after Pure Prairie League broke up? Well, it was interesting because in Pure Prairie League's history, I was the most country guy they ever had in the band. Hmm. But at the period I was in the band, they were trying to be the most pop yeah. that they've ever been. And so it was a—it uh, was probably just, you know, wrong place, wrong time, who knows what. But my my world had always never been really been pointed towards pop music, but towards acoustic music and, and country music and things like that. And yeah. I even, after I left Pure Prairie League, I, I started playing in Rodney Crowell's band as his guitar player and Roseanne Cash's band as her guitar player. And I was trying to get a record deal. Yeah. And nobody wanted to, to sign me as a as a pop singer. And I don't blame them. You know, <laughs> at the time, there was the singer-songwriter guy wasn't really, uh, the thing they were all looking for was kind of punk. It was kind of uh, all kinds of, you know, Devo was popular, things like that. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, it wasn't the singer-songwriter mold that they were most interested in. Right, right. So I was kind of lost lost in the high weeds, you know, in, yeah. the, in that, that little era. And then um, an RCA saw me playing with Roseanne and offered me a record deal in, in the country world. And I said, well, this makes the most sense, you know. Yeah. I remember when Leona cut that song. I mean, that, that was that was the neatest thing ever. Nobody had, had shown any interest in, in, in songs of mine and, and because of that, I got to meet Merle back then, and, and mm. I walked on his bus with Emmy Lou and introduced myself. He goes, oh, I know who you are. You're that kid that wrote Leona's song. Wow. Well. <laughs> just meant the world to me, because yeah. he, he was my favorite of all time. That's awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. So, you know, I just, you know, I, I, it's interesting. You know, that was 37 years ago. Yeah. And, and now I just, I don't even think the song's, that I write now are even comparable to those early days. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that time has gone on and and got a little better at it and yeah. whatnot. But yeah. you can't ever discount those early days. You got to start somewhere. Totally. <laughs> right. Get after it. Well, you mentioned you mentioned Roseanne Cash and and you know. Over the three albums that, that you did with Pure Prairie League, there were more than 15 original Vince Gill songs, and, and all of those were songs that you wrote by yourself. And, you know, though your first two solo singles were written by other people, your third and fourth solo singles, Turn Me Loose and, and True Love, both of which were top 40 hits, those were also written by you solo. But the first time you hit the top 10 was with If It Weren't For Him, which is a song that you, of course, co-wrote and performed as a duet with, with Roseanne in 1985. 
about that song specifically, but also tell us how you first got into co-writing, which is, you know, such a staple of the, the Nashville music community. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know that that much of it went on, you know, and, and living in California uh, it wasn't quite as conducive to, you know, everybody was far away from each other. Yeah. You know, if you lived in Hermosa Beach and somebody lived in Thousand Oaks, it was going to be a chore to hook up and go write songs together. And it just, I don't know, it just didn't, it never did seem to, to be part of the of, uh, of what went on. But once I moved to Nashville in 83, everybody, you know, wrote songs together. You just described my life, by the way, driving from the South Bay to Thousand Oaks to write songs. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're right, it is miserable. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I just, um, I think that, that doing all that co-writing is, is a big part of what what got me better. Mm-hmm. You know, there was somebody else in the room to hold you accountable. Yeah. Say, yeah. hey, that's really not that great of an idea. Let's push through mm-hmm. and let's try to find a better way to say that. And uh, another song in the same era, Oklahoma Borderline, I wrote with Guy and Rodney. And, and it was just, you know, it made more sense. It was more fun mm-hmm. as yeah. much as anything. You know, it's just neat to have somebody to commiserate with and, and, and rattle around ideas. And, um, and, and you know, I've, I've done a little bit of both, you know, I've, over the years. Go Rest High, I wrote by myself. Some of my biggest hits I wrote by myself, but some of the others were all co-writes. So there's, yeah. not, there's not one way that's, that's better or, or any different, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, as we look through this period of your career, we see you kind of beginning to sort of inch up the charts, you know, that you mentioned Oklahoma Borderline, and that was a top 10 hit. And then in 1987, you had your first Billboard Top 5 hit as an artist with Cinderella, which is the only big hit you've had that wasn't written or co-written by you. Um, It was written instead by Reed Nielsen, with whom you went on to co-write several of your hits, including Let's Do Something, Liza Jane, What the Cowgirls Do, and You Better Think Twice. Not to spend too much time on, on the co-writer questions, but it's interesting that you're just as likely to have hits with songs you've written solo as you are with material on which you've collaborated. So how do you decide kind of when to go it alone versus when to pull someone else into the process? Oh, I don't think you... I don't know that there's an answer to that. Hmm. You know, I think that um, at some... There's, there's times in, in my life, I think, where I said, go buckle down and do this by yourself. Hmm. You know, see what happens if you finish this by yourself. And um, uh, to me, the, the the real issue is really it's all about camaraderie. I enjoyed the the process of hanging out with a friend, yeah. you yeah. know, and, and Reed was one of my best buddies. And he uh, passed away a few years back, and, and I just adored writing songs with him. Mm. You know, he had yeah. a different, just a neat slant on, on everything. And, and we wrote some of my favorite songs together. Um and uh, Cinderella was a song that uh, I'd found through him and his. Uh, the guy that uh, published him was also the guy that produced that record, Richard Landis. Mm. And just a unique song, you know. That's I'd never heard of another song that is remotely similar to me to Cinderella. Mm. Yeah. And you know, going back even, uh, you talked about if it weren't for him, the song I'd written with Roseanne. Um, that was my. That was actually my first single. It was going to be my first single. Hmm. And 
it was it was doing great. And Roseanne at the time was not going to. She was at uh, CBS Records, and I was at RCA. Right. And they weren't going to have a record from her for some time. So right after that single came out, they uh, they said you can't have Roseanne on that duet, and they pulled our ability to to have that duet. Man. Or I think my career might have started a lot different. Wow. You know, had that song got to get me started two or three years earlier. Yeah. But, you know, anyway, no yeah. big deal. But <laughs> right. away I went. You know, <laughs> what, what was interesting for me in those days, too, is, is being young and you're a little bit impressionable, is I was trying to please people. Huh. You know, and I was trying to please a record company with some of those early records. And what was funny is I didn't think that they wanted a, uh, a country artist, a real traditional-minded country artist. I thought they were kind of pop-leaning uh, in their interest and right. who they were signing and what was going up the charts. And So I was a little bit lost. And, yeah. and as it turned out, I was so grateful that my first really home run song and, and hit was When I Call Your Name, yeah. this crazy traditional. Yeah. A waltz that was almost five minutes long it became a hit song was unheard of. <laughs> yeah, and I want to ask you about that because you know when I call your name was that was that was a real milestone for you as an artist and a writer. I mean that song earns you your very first CMA award, which was for single of the year. Uh, it was nominated for CMA song of the year two years in a row, which of course it it won the second year. It was also nominated for ACM Song of the Year and for a Best Country Song Grammy, not to mention it set off a string of 16 consecutive singles that reached the top five. Um, so, you know, When I Call Your Name is is arguably one of the most pivotal songs of your entire career. Um, talk about where that idea came from. And, you know, you mentioned it was more kind of this traditional thing. Just talk about how that song kind of came together and, and what that kind of success meant to you at the time. Well, I mean, it was, it was life-changing to finally have that career song. Yeah. You know, everybody would always tell you it only takes one. It just takes the right song at the right time. And I spent years not believing that because <laughs> <laughs> right. that wasn't my experience. And uh, I wrote that song with my dear friend Tim Dubois, another Okie. <laughs> and, you know, we didn't, we, I don't think any of us thought we had had what we had. You know, there was a couple of elements on that song and that record that made it special. One was uh, Barry Beckett's piano playing on the yeah. intro. Mm-hmm. You know, when he plays that intro, it's one of those things where you go, I know what song this is. You know, he hits right. three notes, you go, oh, that's when I call your name. Yeah. And that was pivotal, and Patty's voice on top of mine was was the icing on the cake, you know, that right. really just yeah. uh, was undeniable. And and before before those two elements were on that record, nobody was really jumping up and down about that song or anything. Right. You know, and I played that song um, by myself 
after I'd written it. First time I ever played on the Grand Old Opry. Just me and a guitar, and I played When I Call Your Name. So mm. um, it has a whole lot of um, uh, history and, 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 and neat things for me yeah. because of it, you know. And, and uh, once that, once you finally got, you know, if that was in a time where if you could kind of break through and get a, get a leg up in, the, in that world, they'd stick with you for a good while. Yeah. And they would, they would, they would play your stuff constantly, yeah. and so that was what caused a, a pretty neat run. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and and in the wake of that huge song, uh, you reached the top five again with "Never Knew Lonely," followed shortly thereafter with a top ten hit "Pocket Full of Gold," which earned you an ACM nomination for Song of the Year. And I, I feel like we're going to hear those letters ACM and CMA quite a bit <laughs> over the course of these questions. Um, but around that same time, uh, the group Alabama had a huge hit with Here We Are, a song you co-wrote with Beth Nielsen Chapman. We had to break it all down and build it back up. Lead on each other when the times got rough. How we survived going through so much. Baby, you and I could write a book about a love. I don't believe that's a song you recorded yourself, so I'm I'm kind of curious how those guys ended up cutting it, and how you ended up not cutting it. <laughs> well, it's a funny it's a funny story actually, because you know in my in my years at RCA, you know they were frustrated, I was frustrated, because we never did hit that big home run, you know, and mm, yeah, and they believed in me, and I believed in them, and and we all tried our best, but at the very end um, of my time there, I was getting ready to work on a record. And I didn't know it, but the guy, Barry Beckett, that was going to produce some, some sides on me was uh, was told by the record company that he couldn't cut any of my songs. Hmm. And they, you know, because we'd had no success, and, and I really, I understood why. It's still like a knife in the heart, you know, yeah. to, to, so to speak. And, and one of those songs I had written for that was Never Knew Lonely. One of those songs was When I Call Your Name, and... So there were two or three songs that wound up being big career records for me that that wouldn't have seen the light of day. Yeah, you know, and and that was it was an interesting stretch because Barry was he kind of struggled. He goes, I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. He said, I like your songs. I think they're good, and I think we should record them. And so we did, and and that was basically the the beginning of the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just called them and said, Hey, you know, we we have all tried. Let's won't you let me go and let me go try something else. Yeah, we'll all be better off for it, and mm. they did, and I was grateful for that. And and so um, when Josh Leo had heard this song that Beth and I had written, uh, it was around that same time. And so Josh says, "We want to record this," and I just told him, "I said, well, if you're smart, I wouldn't tell anybody who wrote it <laughs> because they're not, you know, they're not real keen on on songs of mine, which was fine." And so they never knew that I was the writer of that song until it got out and did what it did and yeah. whatever. But um, <laughs> sneaking you know, them in once there again. Just I didn't get I didn't get that many people cutting my songs, you know, because I kind of always had my records to put my songs on. I wasn't actively out pushing my songs to, to other people. Yeah, I always I always had this kind of insecurity that. That people would hear a song of mine and go, "Well, if it's 
any good, why didn't he record it? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And and so you know, I kind of felt that way sometimes when I get a, a, a song from a from another artist, you know, right. and, and um, you know, it's probably a, not a very smart way to think, but <laughs> can't help it. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, Nashville being the the type of community it is. You know, you talk about the kind of ups and downs of in in the arc of an artist and a writer. But you have to see those same people across the restaurant, you know, a, a month later when maybe they've said no to your song or even dropped you from a deal. And you really can't burn any bridges in that town, can you? <laughs> I never did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I never did. I, you know what? I still have the best relationship with those guys at RCA, right. uh, even better than maybe I did when I was there. And, mm-hmm. and to me, it was, it was you know, I, I was grateful for the friendships, and I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to be that negative type guy and yeah. go yeah. pointing fingers and you know right, right. my name on those records and they didn't work is my name on those songs and they didn't work so hmm. you know take a look in the mirror it's okay you know, it's okay <laughs> right. to fail right. a little bit and right. struggle and whatnot I think it make you appreciate it a little bit more when it does flip around for you yeah, yeah. well it definitely flipped around in in a big way in the early nineties because. In 1992, you won CMA Song of the Year once again for Look at Us. And then the following year, you won an unprecedented and still unbeaten third consecutive CMA Song of the Year win for I Still Believe in You, which also happened to be your first number one hit on the Billboard Country Chart. And it also won you a Best Country Song Grammy and the ACM Song of the Year. So a real triple threat. Tell us about the background of that one. Yeah, well, I wrote that with John Jarvis. John and I, John's one of the best piano players in the world. And he, yeah. We met out in Los Angeles in the 70s. He was out playing with different people, Rod Stewart, and on the road with him. And he played in a uh, little local band with some fun guys that my almost wife at the time was singing in that band. So we crossed paths and yeah. knew each other. And um, What's funny about that song is it was not written as a ballad. Hmm. Um, it was written with more tempo hmm. and the record company had heard it and loved it and they said oh it's our first single we love this and John was excited and, and my you know career was going great guns and so we're in the studio and we're getting ready to cut I Still Believe in You and for some reason I just I told Tony Brown who was producing the records and I said man I don't I don't know about you, but I I don't hear this as a as a tempo song. I I kind of hear this as a ballad because there's a song that had come out by Mike Reed uh, that he wrote for Bonnie Raitt called "If I Can't Make You Love Me." Mm-hmm. I can't make you yeah, love man. me. Yeah, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. And it had all this space around it. The vocals just soaring over this beautiful, simple, simple, simple production. And I said yeah. I kind of could hear this song more like this. And I remember John Jarvis's head just hitting the piano, he just thought, oh no, it just took the first single <laughs> idea, and he turned it into an album cut ballad. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, you know, lo and behold, it wound up working pretty good, and that's, I love that song, because it's, it's a great lyric, I think, and, and, and a tremendous melody. Yeah. John is such a, a great musician, and 
I was going through a rough patch uh, in my marriage at the time, and and just getting pulled, you know, in those kind of those days, I was touring a couple hundred days a year, and yeah. was gone, and and everything was tense, and yeah. and that's where the first line of that song came from. Everybody wants a little piece of my time, yeah. And I was just like, you know, I couldn't. I was spread so thin, and so sometimes songs come out of. I think the best songs come out of real life. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, you mentioned that song being a ballad and, and kind of the fear of, of, oh, no, a ballad is is a death sentence if you want a single. But, you know, all three of those CMA Song of the Year winners that we mentioned were fairly contemporary ballads. Um, but you were also having hits with up-tempo stuff at the same time, as well as really establishing yourself as someone with a lot of reverence for the music of the past. Um, you had a big hit with Take Your Memory With You, which was kind of an homage to the Wynn Stewart, Buck Owens, Bakersfield sound kind of thing. Um, and not long after that, you released um, Don't Let Our Love Start Slipping Away, which is your only single to sit at the top of the charts for three straight weeks. video for that song you know you were absolutely at the top of your game but the all-star band that you had backing you for the shoot included these guys like little jimmy dickens and leon russell and carl perkins and delbert mcclinton all people who are who are revered as legends but also people who might not have necessarily been considered super hip in the early 1990s and you know you've pretty consistently brought those roots of the musical past into your current creative expressions. And, you know, I'd like to know why are the roots so important to you? And what is it that you think has compelled you to use um, a bit of your own spotlight to kind of shine a light on some of the pioneers and, and pay that kind of homage very, very consciously, obviously. Well, I think at, at the end of the day, um, can't really know where you're going if you don't know where you've been hmm. and and I think it's it's important to to understand history especially musically um, know where things came from to know that you think George Jones is a great singer well, who was his favorite and you can always Roy Acuff hmm. and then yeah and then Hank Williams you know influenced Ray Price you hear some early Ray Price records and he sounds like Hank Williams mm -hmm. and, and it's really neat to see um, you know, if I if I was to be to tell you I was a, a huge Merle Haggard fan, then that would that would lead me to Lefty Frizzell and, yeah. and, and Jimmy Rogers and and Buck and, and Bob Wills or, or whatever. And it just it's a neat thing to discover. I mm, think yeah. if you find somebody you love, you know, if you're a rock and roll guitar player and you love Eric Clapton, you got the blues in you, then you realize, oh well, Robert Johnson's where Eric got right. it, and then you just trace it back and and it's golly, it's, it's fun to see where, where everything really came from. Right. Um, but more than that, I, I think that the reason I'm that way is, is because that's, that was how I was treated. Mm, yeah. When I was that 18-year-old kid or 16-year-old kid, and, and there was one of, one of the, the great legends of bluegrass or something, and they were welcoming of me. Yeah, yeah, and included me. I never forgot it. Mm -hmm. You know, the friends I made at 16, 17 years old, I still got today. Yeah, and if you can't, you know, be reverent to to those that have helped you, and uplifting to those that are going to come after you, 
and then you know, you're kind of missing the point, you know. Mm-hmm, right. And I, I like that it's that music's inclusive, and right. I like that you know I've got a kid out playing with me this year that's a wicked guitar player named Jed Hughes, and a great singer and a great songwriter and all that stuff. And I just love that there's some kids coming along that that, that have the same kind of love and appreciation and drive and yeah. talent and all those things. It's fun to be around, mm-hmm. whether they're kids or whether they're 75 or 80 years old, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, you know, still looking at that I Still Believe in You album from 92, I mean, that was a remarkable success. We're talking about platinum status five times over. Um, thanks in part to the title track and the aforementioned number one hit, Don't Let Our Love Start Slipping Away. But, you know, you had two more consecutive number ones off that album that are notably different from one another. One More Last Chance is kind of flippant and lighthearted and fun. While trying to get over you is pretty heavy and reflective. I've been trying to get over you. It'll take dying, get it done. You know, I get the sense that you, like so many great songwriters, are not a big fan of being typecast or pigeonholed. And I wonder how that influences your writing process. Well, I think, you know, that life's about all those things. Life's about having a good time. Life's about melancholy. Life's about struggles. Uh, life's about reflection. It's about hope. It's about everything, you know. Go listen to a great Merle Haggard song, and, and as desperate as it is, it always has hope in it. Yeah. Um, it's just, I, you know, I'm a melting pot. You know, I don't like one thing. Musically, I don't like just one thing. I have to, I have to play a little bit of everything. That's what I was meant to be, you know, and, um, it's real easy to find, you know. What the one thing I, I I would say about if I look back on my career, I wish there'd have been a little more tempo, mm-hmm. you know, a little more um, some of that stuff. But to me, all the tempo songs like Liza Jane, One More Last Chance, they were just great feeling records, yeah. you know, and really um, more or less vehicles to play guitar to too. Huh, right, and that was apparent in my songwriting was, you know, whether it was what the cowgirls do or, or some of those others I mentioned. It was like, oh, this is funky. This feels great. This will be fun to play guitar on. Yeah, yeah. And so that was an itch that was important to scratch as much as as the melancholy side or big ballads or, or whatever. And you know, I just I got I got so successful with those ballads that I was I would be foolish to to not keep doing it, I yeah. guess. Mm-hmm. Right, but, right. You know, and now, all these years later, trying to put a show together, you can't get, you can't put all the ballads <laughs> in a show. Right. You can't put everybody in a coma. You're like, I'm not playing a father-daughter <laughs> dance here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had four top five hits in 1994 alone, including Whenever You Come Around, which was actually recently redone by Willie Nelson on his uh, Band of Brothers album, and uh, When Love Finds You, which earned you two more nominations for ACM Song of the Year and the Best Country Song Grammy. And it seems insane to, to blast past so many successful markers in your career, but you know, you've done so much that we'd be here for the rest of the month if we really dove deep on all of it. So in, instead, I want to just almost jump right past 1994, and I want to fast forward um, and ask you about a song that was yet another top five hit the following year, um, Which Bridge to Cross, Which Bridge to Burn, which was co-written with Bill Anderson. I can't sleep 
interviewed Bill for this show. He gave you a lot of credit for revitalizing his songwriting career in the 1990s. Um, tell us about how that happened and, and what that song means to you. Well, I mean, that's a that's a perfect example we were talking about, you know, that uh, why do I reach back to, to generations prior to mine? And there's a great example. There's, there's one of the greatest country songwriters that will ever live. Absolutely. Yeah. And he, he just didn't stop writing great country songs. The business, the interest, you know, the, the, his age, a whole lot of things probably played a factor in his own thinking that I don't, I'm not relative anymore. Yeah. I, I'm not really probably going to matter anymore. We all get to that point if we have a nice run of success. We go, when are they going to turn the faucet off? And right. they always do. Everybody gets the faucet turned off eventually. <laughs> right. And, you know, I just, you know, I love traditional music. You yeah. know, I just love great country songs and 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 we became friends uh through the opry and and suggested that we maybe write these and he was shocked he said you want to write songs with me and i said what are you nuts <laughs> you know you're one of the best country songwriters ever right and and it kind of it inspired him to to kind of start writing again right and, and other writers started co-writing with him and he he had another he had he's had another 20 plus year career right I think because of it, you yeah. know, but I was, you know, I was also inspired to write as authentic of a country song as I possibly could. And, and that was a, it was a great, great idea that he had, which bridge to cross, which bridge to burn. And I go, God, that's right up my alley. That's yeah. what I like, you know, yeah. that's, 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 that's hard. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And so it was a no brainer. Man. You know, Bill actually uh, told us one of had one of the funniest statements I think we've ever had in a Songcraft interview. We were talking about his song "I Can't Wait Any Longer" from the '70s, and, and we referred to that as the first marriage of country music and disco. And Bill popped right back in and said, "They have since divorced." <laughs> <laughs> He's a funny guy. Hilarious. He's funny. Um, well, your fourth CMA Song of the Year win came in 1996 for "Go Rest High on That Mountain." Um, that's a song that also won you another Grammy Award for Best Country Song. Go rest high on that mountain Son, your work on earth is done Go to heaven And even though that one surprisingly didn't break into the top 10, Go Rest High on That Mountain became one of your most enduring songs. Tell us about the inspiration for that one. Well, that, you know, if everybody has a song that they're remembered for, they'll be lucky. Right. You know, and that will be mine, mm -hmm. I think. And it kind of, it, um, it bypassed uh, hit song kind of uh, 
thought process, you know, because of what it's about. I'm, my brother died in 93, and I was trying to grieve um, the loss of losing my big brother, and, and that's what came out, you know. And I probably, honestly, I didn't have probably much interest in recording that song. Hmm. I just wanted to get through that process. And, and Tony Brown heard it and says, we've got to record this song. I think so. I don't know if anybody wants to hear something that sad or whatever. But you know, if I the the record is very sad sounding, but the lyric is very uplifting. Mm. You know, it's very it's very hopeful of what you maybe hope is in store for someone that's passed on. And and so um, from from that, it's it's gone on to kind of become a modern day Amazing Grace. Yeah, yeah. And I hear people, you know. All the time. Well, I heard that. I heard your song at the funeral yesterday. Yeah. I heard your song at this funeral, and and that's kind of like I said. That that's that's a different kind of uh, place for a song to get when it's not just a popular song that was on the radio and people like to hear. When when people are struggling and they're going through loss of life and they're going through losing a mother or a father or a grandparent or a brother or so whoever it is or a child, it's just if they want if they they use something you've done to really lean on in their most painful times. That's when something really, really, really matters. Mm, yeah, yeah. And and that's been the case for that. You know, I just, um, it's probably, you know, maybe someday it'll turn up in a hymnal or something like that. Wow. But um, that'll be the, that'll be the one song I think that is, is different than chart success or award success or, sales success or any of that stuff people are just gonna go to that song when they hurt that means the world to me well, your 1996 album, High Lonesome Sound, produced several big hits, including Worlds Apart, uh, Pretty Little Adriana, A Little More Love, You and You Alone, and the uh, the title track, which earned you yet another Grammy nomination for Best Country Song. When we talk to writers who are also artists, there seems to be a trend that as their careers rise, you start seeing their writing kind of taking a back seat as the various demands of being a celebrity seem to make it, you know, kind of harder and harder to concentrate on writing. But that does not seem to have ever happened with you, even when you were at the the peak of country music superstardom in the mid 90s. Um, why do you think that you were able to keep that creativity flowing and, and keep the writing at the center of your artist career, even as you were undoubtedly pulled in, in various directions? Well, I think at the end of the day, it was the most important thing to me. Hmm. Um, that, that the people that I look back, that I was inspired by and admired and loved what they did, they were all people that wrote their own songs. Yeah. You know, whether it was the Beatles or Simon and Garfunkel or... James Taylor or the Eagles or, or, you know, just on and on and on. Everything that I loved, people, they created it themselves. And it was, I didn't want to be a, uh, I didn't want to be an interpreter of song. I wanted right. a songwriter. And so that was, it was kind of the most important thing. So um, I knew I had a record coming up. I would buckle down and go try to write some good songs for a record and, and try to, maybe write 40 or 50 songs to get eight or 10 that were decent, you know? And, wow. and it's interesting because as, as the years moved on and 
I fell out of favor with radio and they didn't start playing my stuff anymore, that would that would have a tendency to make people believe, so, well, maybe the songs aren't any good anymore. Hmm. But I don't think that's the case. I think the songs are even better than the than the ones that were, you know, successful right. because of awards and results of sales and things. But, you know, none of the notes change on any of these songs, or the <laughs> words change, whether they win awards or sell a bunch of records. <laughs> right. It's kind of either there or it ain't. You right. know? And so if I can hear... I can hear the progression and the, and the improvement of the way I write songs and being willing to be patient and edit myself and wait for the right the right stuff to, to put in there. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah, yeah, you know, sure. That, that some of these songs are and they're more powerful to me than, than some of those that were wildly successful. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is kind of a, a question in that same vein of, of your your writing today, and you've you know mentioned a couple times of how you sort of feel like it's it's progressed and you've kind of hit your stride, you know, after all these years. But as we move into the late 1990s and, and early 2000s, there were a handful of notable hits, including the top five, uh, If You Ever Have Forever in Mind, which earned both a Best Country Song Grammy nomination and a CMA Song of the Year nomination, as well as Feels Like Love, which was a top 10 hit and also earned a, a Best Country Song Grammy nomination. But I actually want to ask you about a song that might be less well known, though it too actually earned a Grammy nomination. Um, it's hard to kiss the lips at night that chew your ass out all day long, which was kind of a, a novelty song by the notorious yeah. Cherry Bombs, you know, which which you co-lead with with Rodney Crowell. But you know, it includes a line in that song: "It's all right if we say it, because the radio won't play it." And you seem to be a guy who has reached a place where you feel the freedom to do whatever you want to do. And you know, sometimes it might be commercial, sometimes it won't be commercial. But you know, I don't get the sense that you're necessarily too concerned with that at this point. And do you think having reached that place and, and having that kind of freedom has actually changed the way that you approach the songwriting process? I don't know. I really don't. I don't feel much different hmm. than I ever did. I don't think anybody held my feet to the fire to do anything, you know, at any point. I felt like I was writing these songs and writing the best songs I could, and, and I, I felt free even in those days, mm-hmm. you know. So I can't look back and say, no, I have the freedom to say and do whatever I want. I just think that the perspective is, is really the big difference. Yeah. You know, I, I was I was 20 years old and I was 40 years old. Now I'm 60 and I, and, and I have a different perspective. Yeah. I have more life experience. I have uh, all those things to to draw from, I guess, and and things that I might have used to worry about. I don't worry about it anymore. They're mm-hmm. not that big a deal. And and that song was uh, actually the idea of my father hmm. before he passed away. And hmm. he told me, he says, I've got i got this song idea, I think you'll be bigger than Elvis if you finish this one, you know, and it was that title. And it was funny as hell, right, you know, and right. I promised him I'd write it someday, and I never did, and, and he since passed away in 97, and I still didn't finish it for another, I don't know, seven or eight years, ten years, something like that. And, yeah. Um, and Rodney and I were writing some songs for, we were going to make a cherry bomb record for fun, and get the old guys back together and have some fun, and I told him about that song, and he said, God, that's a great idea. we got to finish that. Yeah. So we did, and, and um, that's, you know, that's tongue-in-cheek, about as good as you can get. <laughs> right. you know, I, I love laughing, you know. I've, yeah. I've always loved comedy. I love having a sense of humor, and I maybe look back and wish that 
few more of my songs had some more humor in it, but they don't. But <laughs> uh, maybe some in the future might. But yeah. um, that one just made people laugh. And my favorite memory of that song was when they read the title at the Grammys at the pre-telecast for <laughs> right, the awards. Right. We were sitting next to Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> and when they said the title of that song, he fell out of his chair and he laughed so hard. And he didn't know we were the guys sitting next to him that had written it. Right. It was so <laughs> funny to see him respond to that. But uh, that's always that's always fun to see right. people's reaction when they don't see that one coming, you know? Right, <laughs> right. Um, you know, I want to ask you about your 2006 album, These Days. It was a four-disc box set of original material, won the Grammy for Best Country Album. It's packed with duets, and each disc embraces a different musical theme. There are 43 songs on These Days. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's an ambitious project, to say the least. And, you know, if you write 40 or 50 songs to get a good 10 for an album, how many do you write to get a good 43? <laughs> <laughs> Quite a few, but you know what? The, what really happened, you know, is that's that's we were talking earlier about perspective. And after writing songs for thirty or forty years, I'm I'm working on this new record, you know. And I didn't intend on making a four CD record. That was mm-hmm. not my intent when I started yeah. uh, that record. I just started recording some of these songs that I'd written. And you know, the the truth is, is I think when you're a little older, you don't you may not have to write 50 songs to get 10 good. Hmm. Uh, because you got enough experience to know when you're going down a, the wrong the wrong road and you just throw it away. Right. You don't waste the time to finish and, and write a bad song. So um, maybe the numbers change a little bit to your favor. But the other thing was, is I, I, felt, um, I felt like, you know, I've written songs all these years and I may have, I may have, picked the best songs and maybe I didn't maybe I missed a few and there's a few in the drawer that are really pretty good songs that I've missed and I kind of I got to working on this record and I'd written my 40 or 50 songs and uh, I started thinking God I'm going to have to pick 8 or 10 songs and and put these others in the desk drawer I've got you know a whole desk drawer full of these songs Mm. so I just started recording all these songs that I'd written just to see what happened. Yeah. And there was traditional songs, there was really moody ballads, there was rockers, and and, and I just kept recording. And I, I think I recorded 30 songs, you know, in a, in a span of four, five, six weeks, and wow. nobody was beating my door down to get a new record out of me anyway, so I felt the freedom to go have some fun. And, and then I looked up and I go, oh, hell, I've recorded 30 songs, I'm going to have to get rid of 20 of them. <laughs> right. And I started listening to this thing, and I said, you know what, if I took these seven or eight songs right here, that's a really kind of pointed uh, uh, record that kind of all pertains to a real traditional country place. And mm-hmm. these are, all these ballads could be this really romantic, beautiful record. And I, I called the record company, and I said, I think I stumbled into something pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I went and played them a bunch of stuff, and, and they actually kind of jumped on board, which surprised me. <laughs> and... And they said, well, what, man, don't stop now. Yeah. Why don't you go make a fourth record? Wow. You know, and and maybe make it a little, you know, like bluegrass. You've never done anything like that. So, um, and some of those songs were old songs. You know, hey, mm. I, I, don't, I don't know, maybe 10 of those songs were, I had some years on them and had some history. And maybe I never had the right record to put a certain song on. I always felt like 
a song had to fit a record to put it on it. Yeah. And so there there came the chance to uh, to put a whole bunch of songs that had a bunch of years on them that I thought might have been good songs that just never saw the light of day. And away I went, you know, and, and it took forever to do it, but it was so much fun to be real traditional at one minute and then be doing a jazz duet with Diana Krall and that. Yeah, and yeah so cool. Rocking with Big Al Anderson and then just, you know, bluegrassing. And, and that was my favorite, maybe my favorite stretch I've ever had, oh, being man. creative. And then my fear was, was, you know, finishing this record and there's 43 new songs on it. <laughs> Critics going to hear it and go, you know, 11 would have been plenty. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I'm proud of that record because it kind of holds up. You know? Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. It was a real, real neat uh, stretch of hard work. Proud right. of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the lead single from your 2011 album, Guitar Slinger, was Threaten Me With Heaven, which was nominated for both uh, a Grammy and the ACM Song of the Year. What's the worst thing that could happen? What's the worst that they can do? Well, threaten me with heaven. That's all we can do. Threaten me with heaven. If they want to. And your wife, Amy Grant, is a, is a writer on that song, as well as a couple other tracks uh, from that album. But other than, than those tracks, you've released just four album cuts since 1994 that the two of you have written together. And, and you know, on her side, other than her own version of Threaten Me With Heaven, the only co-written song I'm aware of that she's released was uh, Do You Remember the Time from her 2003 album Legacy, Hymns and Faith. Now, you and Amy are obviously both highly accomplished writers, um, so I'm almost surprised to not see more collaborations. Do you guys actually write much together, or is it difficult to kind of write with your spouse in the way that you can write with a more objective party? No, I don't think we, you know, I don't think there's any, any weirdness attached to it. It's just, I think when we got married late in life, our careers were both, you know, 25 plus years of, of doing what we've been doing, so... Yeah. We didn't really feel the need to try to become Sonny and Cher. It's <laughs> <laughs> because we got married. Right. And you know, I think you know, I think our our songwriting styles are vastly different and the handful that we've you know like several of those songs, um, one of those songs uh, that we is credited as a co write was True Love, the duet that we did. Right. And that's really her song. You know, she wrote that song and I kind of helped with the bridge and, and melodically and helped her musically with that song, but she wrote that song. Yeah. Um, Threaten Me With Heaven was, there was three of them, her and Will Owsley, the late Will Owsley and Dylan O'Brien already had that song in, in motion. I came home from a golf game and walked in and I said, what are you guys doing? They said, oh, we're stuck. You know, we've got this song going, but we're stuck. So I sat down and, and kind of helped them finish it off and, and, and make it all work and whatever and so even in the times that we've written some songs together it hadn't been you know sit down and let's hash this out mm, yeah um i don't know i don't know why you know we we probably should but uh you know so far we're just kind of she does her deal and i do mine and yeah. we're really crazy about each other <laughs> we're not trying right. to mess it up right <laughs> right right yeah. Well, your most recent solo album, Down to My Last Bad Habit, was released in February of 2016. But there's one project that we haven't mentioned yet, and that's the Time Jumpers, 
um, a Western swing group that you perform with. And your most recent Grammy for Best American Roots Song was awarded for Kid Sister, which is also the title of the Time Jumper's most recent album. And that, that came out back in September. Sweet memory, I will care. Like Go Rest High on That Mountain, this is another really personal song that's kind of a tribute. Tell us about the experience of writing something that's so personally emotional. Well, that was written for Dawn Sears, who was, if people have never heard her sing, they should go find anything she's ever sung. She's one of the greatest singers I ever heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, just pure country singer, uh, extraordinaire. And she sang in my band with me for about 22 years on the road. And I loved singing with her and adored her. And um, and after, she was kind of the, the focal point of the Time Jumpers band. And she unfortunately passed with cancer in, in 14. And and I think the the moment I found out that uh, she passed, I, I sat down and, and started writing that song for her. I always like to put in songs, you know, what, what I'm feeling and, and the emotions that I struggle with. I think some neat song, not only some neat song, but it helps me, it helps me grieve. It helps me mm. get past hard times. Yeah. You know, if I can go to music for for some of these things. And that was, you know, I called it Kid Sister because she was my kid sister. Yeah. You know, I didn't have a little sister. I had an older sister, but, um, and just was kind of joined at the hip with her, singing so much over the course of my life. And, and so just trying to put into words and and uh, let people know that she mattered. Mm, yeah, you know, yeah. That simple. And and once again, you, know, you, you just root for for hope mm-hmm. in songs like that. You know, yeah. what you hope for, who's gone and what you're struggling with and what you're going to try to um, try to get by, you know. And, yeah. yeah. Um, so that whole album was a bit of a tribute uh, to her because we had started that record and in the middle of it she passed and we never did get to get much of her her talent on that record just on a couple of songs but yeah. uh, we were able to, to find hmm. You talk about that that kernel of hope and you know you had mentioned Merle Haggard earlier and said you know even in in the bleakest songs you know that Merle wrote that there was always that kind of glimmer of hope and and you know you you also wrote a song recently called Lost in a World Without Haggard and you know I I think it's very interesting um with songs like you know Go Rest High or or like the Kid Sister song or the the Haggard song it's obvious that one of the ways that you still process grief and loss is to go to to the song, to, to work out things in song, which I think for somebody who's been in the business as long as you have and have had um, such commercial success, it, it demonstrates that you obviously still have a very emotional and, and you know deep connection to the songwriting process. How do you keep that flame alive you know, when you've written a gazillion songs and when you've, you've reached the, the height of, of commercial success? How do you manage to keep that little flicker kind of deep in your gut of still just being the guy that that needs to write to process, you know, his own feelings? Well, I 
think in, in 60 years what you, you stumble upon is the, the, the one thing that matters the most is truth. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what, it's what really kind of, it, it trumps everything. You know, it, it's, I heard, I even heard Merle say it, you know, in an interview, he said, hell, why don't you, let's just tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Get it over with, you know, <laughs> quit, quit hiding behind this and ducking that and just tell the truth. It's, you don't have to. You don't ever have to run from the truth. And that's what my dad always said. He said, "If you if you've told the truth, you don't have to. You don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to defend it. Mm, no. When you tell the truth, there's you, you don't have to defend it. It just is. Mm. And I think that's where where I find the 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 greatest value in in these years of life is is steeped in that truth. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Well, more than 30 years of, of telling the truth, having hits, pursuing side projects just because you want to. Very, very impressive career, kind of an unprecedented career in terms of just pure songwriting success, but also integrity and, and reminding people to look back to the past and, and to you know not chase the, the flavor of the month. And so it's, it's a real inspiration for us to have an opportunity just to kind of dig into your catalog and talk about some of these songs and get your thoughts. And, and we really thank you for taking the time today to, to spend with us and to, to share your stories. Well, thanks. You made me remember a few I don't think about very often. <laughs> 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 Appreciate it. <laughs> thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters. 